This is Learning Innovation, the teaching and learning podcast, also known as LittlePod. We are created by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation, located in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada, on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. In the spirit of equity, diversity and inclusion, and Nitsitapi Simstan, or real thinking, we play host to a spectrum of guests from the teaching and learning community. As we highlight and explore innovation in education, we hope to kindle warm conversations, expand perspectives, and foster lasting partnerships today, tomorrow, and beyond. The future of learning starts now. Okay, and welcome to episode number 39 of The Little Pod. Our guest today is Dr. Brenda McDermott, Manager of Accessible Testing at the University of Calgary. Brenda is part of a research team led by Dr. Sarah Elaine Eaton, who is an Associate Professor of Education at the University of Calgary. The team is working on a research project about artificial intelligence and academic integrity. Brenda will be sharing a little about her work and her perspective on the use of artificial intelligence in teaching and learning. Welcome, Brenda. Thanks so much for having me, Donna. Well, I am really excited about to learn more about your work and uh, um, excited about our conversation today. So um, AI text generators, specifically chat GPT, have been a hot topic this year and really quite recently in the last couple months. So there's been lots of excitement, experimentation, and of course, fear that it will overtake jobs and um, more relevant to today's topic, uh, wreak havoc on academia. So for those unfamiliar with chat GPT and the like, can you give us a quick rundown of GPTs and AI text generators? Sure. Uh, most of them are based on natural language processing. Um, natural language processing um, are things like sentence completion. Maybe you've had a word recommendation. Did you want this phrase on your cell phone or when you're writing an email? And they take it a little bit of a further with things like uh, sentiment analysis. So trying to look at, you know, what are the relationship between words? So natural language processes are taken to the next level by using generative pre-trained transfer. GPT. So the idea here is um, that we have tools based on AI that are actually looking at the global dependencies. So looking at not just these are the words, this is what we think is going to come next, but looking at parsing our little input to actually find, to be able to generate a larger chunk of text. That sounds very fascinating and very complicated. Well, the first part I understand. The second part um, is a little more complicated, but um, can you tell me more about your research project on artificial intelligence and academic integrity? For sure. And I, I apologize for the explanation there. We do have some fabulous people from mechanical engineering on our team um, who are probably the best able to describe what these tools do and how they work. But from uh, the perspective of our research project, we're really looking at what can people do with it? So we're going to run an adaptive Turing test, which basically means we're going to give people hunks of tasks and ask them, hey, was this text tied to a human produced it? Or do you think AI produced it? Or are you not sure? 
And we're looking to be serving a bunch of faculty members here, teaching assistants, students, to get their perspective on, you know, if they're able to look at the text and determine the author, we're also asking them to kind of grade it, to tell us, you know, what quality of work do you think this is? Uh, what a great association in terms of both like, you know, are they first year or are they second year quality or and where would you put it on kind of a grading scale? The nice thing that we've had here is we have had collaboration from um, some colleagues at Brock University who ran a similar study and we were allowed to take it a bit further. So there's focused on education students doing responses. We're looking at all of the universities. So you drafted samples from you know, English and poems, we have samples from uh, technical work in engineering. So we're hoping to be able to kind of provide a breadth of responses and see, you know, what do people, are they able to figure it out? And then the next step is to talk to them, doing a little bit more of that uh, qualitative research and ask them, you know, what, what do you think might be an ethical use of this technology? What experience do you have in using assistive technologies? Because they're not as remote or distant as they were in the in the past. Well, and it seems like sometimes we're using them and we're not even aware that we're using them anymore. Exactly. We're using things uh, like dictation software, software that reads to us. We're using a variety of, yeah, those Grammarly, all of these tools that kind of come and help us with, with our work. And we may not really realize where they're from or what, what are they assisting us with? Yes. Uh, that sounds like really amazing research. That would be very interesting. You, you must be excited to sort of see what the results are going to be. Very excited to, to find out that and really to get a perspective from multiple disciplines because there's such a wide range of students and faculty. So it'd be great to kind of know what, what's going on for science, what's going on for the humanities, this variety of perspectives, I think is going to be very helpful to shape us as we're going to be working with this technology in our jobs, it's going to continue. So it'd be nice to see kind of what is that holistic view. Yeah, with it being early days, yeah, to see, you know, will it be different by subject or how, how will that look? Can you talk a little bit about, um, okay, we've got uh, the term GPT-0, um, which where you plug in some text and then it will highlight where it thinks AI has written it. Um, is this software that you're familiar with? Yes, the work that came, I think, of a student from Harvard? Yes. Yeah, so I see, you know, um, the software that, um, so GPT or chat GPT, it's all about predictive. So it's searching its knowledge bank and thinking, okay, what I've seen, things on this topic, I've seen this cluster of words. So his software is basically looking and going, does it seem like this is something that, would be generated by an AI tool in terms of the prediction, right? Because humans maybe are, we're a little bit more chaotic in our writing. Um, so I think it's an interesting idea to look at it, but part of where I'm wondering is, is like, what, what do we think the value of knowing an AI did it or not is? Part of that is just tied to, um, if, you, if you're able to access ChatGPT, it's a very popular tool now, but or even some of GPT-3 or InfraKit, the quality that it produces is not always exceptional. I think of it like in terms of um, the Scottish play, full of sound and fury, but signifying nothing, <laughs> right? It tells you a lot, but it doesn't actually tell you a lot. Um, so um, 
I think that's part of it is, you know, yes, on very simple assignments that have hundreds of papers in Wikipedia and the internet, it can scour and write you something. But if you ask it to do something more specific, that's where that pre-trained piece doesn't work as well. So often the engineers will call it like first shot learning versus second shot. So the idea of like, if I don't give you any training, what does it produce? What's really interesting is if you take the time to feed it lots of examples and go from there, you get very interesting, um, better quality work, but it's very time conducive to do that. Like a student's not going to feed it multiple papers, but it's very interesting to see when you actually train it and you give it that capability, you get a much better response. So I'm thinking, you know, and, and that's the context in which I don't think we've had a chance to test GPT zero. But it's, I think sometimes people are focusing so much on it can produce this rather than looking at what is the real quality of it. And you brought up an interesting point, like where is the value in knowing whether it's AI generated or not? And I think that's going to be the interesting part too. One is to see, can we distinguish it? Because as human beings, maybe we have subtleties that we look for. Um, And also I think to understand too, if we can't distinguish it, you know, what are we evaluating from a teaching and learning perspective? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many um, kind of questions that arise with this. And I think, too, of just something as simple as my phone when I'm sending a text or a message and how often it's wrong with the predictability. There are some really funny uh, things that people have done with it, right? Like, so if, um, that, yeah, it's, it's not always correct. Um, it will attempt to answer. Now, OpenAI is a company uh, and it works with Microsoft. So there's talk uh, with Microsoft on what is the next level there? Can they start having uh, a tool that validates what it's producing to make sure it's correct? Um, But currently in its infancy, infancy, you really need to be a good reader, right? Reading it and you have to make that evaluation piece on, is this right? Is this correct? Does this make sense to me as a reader? Um, And the more complicated the content the less so that it's able to do it or it's requiring some more input from the user. Like, yes, it can write a lab report finding section, but you have to give it the findings. You have to be able to give it that input. It can't do it if you just write a prompt of three words. Yeah. So the critical thinking is really crucial. Exactly. Um, And, and this sounds like really kind of the research that you guys are diving into then is some of the questions that you've just posed there. Exactly. Getting to see like, how do people read and judge the quality? I think the other piece that we're really interested to find out is, you know, where do, where, where is this boundary? So uh, Phil Dawson um, out of an Australian university really asks about this, like, where's the boundary between this being an assisted technology where it's helping students with the cognitive load that they're dealing with process information versus academic integrity? issues and academic misconduct. So I think that's where we want to go and say, okay, how do students see this as an assistive tool for them? Is this something that helps them get over writer's block? Is it something that helps them get a starting point or find the right word? Is, are they thinking of using it that way? Are there other tools that they use? Where's that appropriate? So we can start creating that uh, framework that's really based on evidence for our colleagues on, you know, what is appropriate use? How do we actually use this tool ethically 
rather than going um, to where some of the fear has gone right away, which is, you know, watch out, don't use it. It's bad. And versus going, how can we help students work with this moving forward if we're going to? And if so, where are those lines? Where do we set those boundary lines? Do you think it will give you some insights too on um, the learning? Where is the learning happening? How is the learning happening? Or how can it uh, help with the learning to happen? I think what it's probably going to do from some of the preliminary discussions um, that I've been to or a few conferences, I think it really challenges assessment and modes of assessment that many agree were probably not ideal to begin with. Um, you know, like, do we just, you know, that rote knowledge and memorization that sometimes occurs uh, in classes. And I think this is where it's pushing it. It says, you know, is that going to be a good way of assessing? Are we really, are these the learning outcomes we want to assess? So I think that's where it's had the most uh, destabilizing idea. And that's where I think it's also the most exciting because assessment's a hard thing to push and change. And this may force the post-secondary sector to really think about, we do have to change it because if I'm asking the same assignment 17 different times, it's a very common assignment, it's common knowledge. How do I now future-proof that assignment in a way that's also probably going to require students to do more of that higher order thinking, move up Bloom's taxonomy, right? And also make it more meaningful for themselves too, right? So that it's something that they want to do and engage that's very interesting. It sounds like, yeah, we're really on the edge of a transform transformation. Uh, according to the CBC News article called, Should Students Use Apps to Write Assignments? Attitudes on U of C Campus Surveyed. The results of your team's research could help shape academic misconduct policies at universities across Canada, perhaps even the world. Can you speak to this? Yes, I think we're we're really hoping to be able to, through that Turing test and follow-up interviews with faculty and students, to really get to have that data to help shape policy. And one of the ways that I think we're set up to do this is in the variety of people who are involved on this project. So there's myself, who comes from an accessibility perspective. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Eaton from education. We have Dr. Weens from English. We also have Dr. Brennan from um, engineering as well as a variety of fabulous uh, project managers and research assistants who all bring their own unique lens to this. So we're able to think about it a little less of focusing on a particular discipline to really think about it as a, a community or university response. The other thing that I think that we're already sort of feeling and responding to is a little bit of that, that fear um, I come from a communication studies background, so I see like this is a moral panic going on. You know, we have something that's destabilizing us uh, and we're trying to rationalize and work with it. Um, but being able to have something that actually articulates that boundary line more clearly for students. I also see it from an accessibility perspective in terms of traditionally when we jump into, do we use a new technology or not? such as calculators, or if we go far enough back to, you know, there was a whole fury about, can you write something down and not memorize everything? Books, books were considered, you know, not appropriate use uh, way back in the middle ages. So I see it as sometimes being really cautious too about who, who is going to be um, discriminated or disadvantaged by our choices here. And to recognize that um, 
you know, if we decide that students aren't allowed to use this in all contexts, you know, um, are we actually eliminating a tool that maybe helps someone who would benefit from the translation function of it to help starting to express themselves? So for our English language learners, um, is it something that can also, you know, help people see an example of something? Maybe they've never written it before. They don't come with the same educational background and training and opportunities as maybe those traditional students that we think of at post-secondaries. And these could be really useful tools for them rather than, you know, these could be really useful tools for students um, who maybe have not had the same setup coming into post-secondary. This doesn't mean I'm saying they should all write their assignments with it because you won't get it. not great quality right now, but it's another way of presenting information. And so from our preliminary uh, literature review, one of the possibilities or excitements around um, GPT and fellow tools is the way that it allows people to present material in multiple ways. So there's a real alignment with this idea of being able to have maybe future customized education, but even now you can ask it like, can you, here's a chunk of text. Can you reword this for me? So if you're dealing with really old English, you're dealing with, um, you know, Plato and Aristotle, these big ideas, just be able to read a different version of a summary might help a wide variety of students before they even go to write about it. It's very interesting. I I, um, I really like that you mentioned all the different technologies over time and that this, um, you know, is, is another one. And so there's so much complexity to it as well, because, yeah, I th think a lot of institutions may be looking to the work that you're doing for uh, implementing policies. And, and again, you know, you you want to find that balance of of policy, but also not disadvantaging anyone. Yeah, and I think we I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned um, from the pandemic, in particular, the jump to use technology around proctoring students virtually. Uh, and and all of these sort of AI driven tools are only as good as the data it was trained on. And so um, when we had that experience, we uh, we did not at the University of Calgary adopt one of those tools. But as we saw from colleagues across Canada and the world, we learned quite quickly that the set of data that we're trained on did not represent the diversity of students. So there were issues with students of different skin color not being picked up appropriately by the AI tools. Um, students who uh, maybe were a bit more anxious or students who didn't have the a benefit of writing in a private room by themselves. They shared a household with other people. And so there were questions of like, you know, people coming in and talking to them in a different language. So I think we have to learn, be careful from that from that learning and recognize, you know, what is the data that we're training these tools on? And that's where I feel like a little bit of complexity comes in and it's called open AI, but it is a private company. We do not have access. Like they tell us what they've trained it on, but we don't actually know exactly what data it's been trained on and how representative that data was, for example, of the way that people speak and write across the world. So we're getting data that's produced, but some of the early studies on like GPT-3 suggest that it sadly picked up some of our biases as well. Hmm. What are the team's hopes uh, at the conclusion of your research project? I think our hope is to be able to, I think, provide what I, at least, or my hopes, I won't speak for the whole team, to give some guidelines of not just on how to deal with this technology, but maybe how can we future-proof some of our responses to academic integrity? 
So I hope it gives us a sense of, you know, rather than trying to eliminate like this tool is inappropriate, this tool is inappropriate, that maybe we could have a discussion about what is learning technology, when and what contexts are certain learning technologies allowed, when are they not allowed, um, so that we don't have to respond um, as a reaction to new technologies, but one that's already thinking about how this tool is going to develop and expand. Mm. And it sounds like that would help also kind of boil down to what is learning? What does that mean? What does that look like? Um, you know, kind of the essence of that. Or at least down to what are we assessing? And are we assessing and evaluating particular things? So are, if we want to look at how verbose someone is, then yeah, GPT will do a great job on that for them. Oh, we're looking for someone to be concise and say thoughtful things, some of that critical thinking. Well, then maybe... Maybe we care less that the syntax uh, or the spelling and grammar was corrected by machine. That may depend on the subject matter, because in other contexts, when we're looking at language learning, those may be the actual skills that we're evaluating. And I think that's the tension. Why is GPT sort of exploding in popularity right now? It feels like overnight that AI has made leaps and bounds in advancement. I think we all kind of discovered it with that launch of ChatGPT uh, because it, again, it's done such a good job on its pre-training that you don't have to do all those multi-shot learning pieces. Um, but there was, there was a variety of these tools pre-ChatGPT. Uh, they required a more specific prompt to, to get at the content. So uh, if I asked ChatGPT uh, to write me a limerick about academic integrity, it reads it, it goes limerick, that's a form, it produces a particular rhyming pattern. In some of the earlier versions uh, or alternates, I asked them to write me a limerick about academic integrity and it wrote me a really beautiful paragraph about the University of Limerick and his academic integrity policy. So I think it's a lot more user-friendly in the newer versions. Uh, and it's, I think it amazes us a little bit, but at the same time, there were versions around that existed. I mean, chat GPT-3 is the third version, right? So there have been variations that have been worked on. When you say that amazes us, I think that's that's part of what has maybe sparked some of this sort of popularity right now is people are kind of amazed with some of the things it's doing and, and they're, you know, kind of testing out the waters with it. But we've all interacted with variations of it prior to this. I mean, if you've done a had a chat bot that you've asked for directions from or clarification. It's just this one is able to provide you with maybe more robust answers where previous you got, are you looking for this? Click here, are you looking for this? But all of these elements have been around um, in various contexts. When did, uh, going back to the research project, when did the research project with Dr. Uh, Sarah Elaine Eaton start to take shape? So Dr. Eaton, um, Dr. Brennan, and Dr. Wines all applied for a teaching and learning grant. Um, and they started to form it in the fall of 2021. Um, Dr. Elaine likes to always share that, you know, oh, we was very Star Trek kind of thing at that point in time. So we have been um, grateful. We received funding from our Taylor Institute for Teaching and Learning grant in 20. 22, and that's sort of allowed us to start this project and work on some of the preliminary literature reviews, gathering up our survey instruments and such. But 
it was before all of this sparked off. So it was kind of nice to be a little bit of a ahead of the game. But it also is interesting to see how quickly people are reacting to it now. Yeah, that's wonderful timing. So coming from your accessibility perspective, what are your thoughts on the technology and on what you're seeing so far? Like everyone, it's so new. Um, but what I kind of come from is a little bit of thinking about, you know, if we're trying to beat the bot, who is going to get disadvantaged from this? Um, I think CAPTCHA is a good example of this. Uh, if you ever had to like fill out a form and prove you're not a robot, and then it gives you uh, some text, but all the words are crooked or italicized or you know, they're in that weird position. And if you have any difficulty with vision or reading, or you're just tired that day, it's very hard to, to do that. Um, and that's a tool that came out with this whole purpose of, I want to beat a bot. Um, but it's not, it was not very accessible to begin with. And even though there are some variations, it's still quite challenging. Sometimes it's like, pick all the ones that don't have a boat in it. And I'm like, is that a boat? I don't know. It's only half of a screen. I just need to get to my page. Um, so I'm always really thoughtful that, you know, if we're going in from this place of let's restrict everything, who are we making life more difficult for? And often they're the individuals um, who things are more difficult for. Every other thing isn't made for them. Every day is work. And now we're adding more work to this. So um, I really think about that. And the other thing that I think of from an accessibility point of view is some of the early implementations of AI tools are kind of already out there. Some of them have been done, you know, with parole boards, with uh, medical systems, or even uh, human resources. And we're implementing them there. But we've never trained, that generation has never been trained on how to ethically use it. And they don't often ask questions, again, about whose data was used to create this. Was it representative data? And so we're finding, you know, finding, you know, are there potential biases there? And again, who is impacted by those potential biases? Is it the BIPOC community? Is it women? Is it individuals with disabilities? So I see it as kind of two things is we don't want to rush and say, no one can use this tool because we may be adding new barriers to people who are facing barriers in their life. At the same time, where I'm also concerned is we're not training our students on how, to, how this is created and how this is used and how to evaluate bias in these tools. And are they going to go forth and be the the, the doctors who may choose to use a tool, um, the businesses who may implement this um, and know, and think, oh, it's an AI tool. It has no bias. Well, it, it might. We haven't actually talked about how AI develops bias because we trained it on materials and those materials were created by human beings. So I kind of see it as twofold. Be careful when you're using it. And I think we have an obligation to train students to ask those questions. On the other hand, be careful of just outright banning things very quickly without recognizing who is being impacted by that. Yeah, there's really a lot to consider, and I can see both sides of, of the perspectives. Um, how, would, how should we position ourselves for a future with GPTs and advancing AI tech? Seems like it's moving fairly quickly. Yes, and I think the as we can see from Microsoft, and I think they're gonna, their new Bing search is going to use elements of ChatGPT. Um, I've imagined that it will not be so long before we start seeing more of these things integrated if you uh, use Microsoft-based tools. I'm already seeing it telling me how to finish my emails more often than I did before. 
So I think it's going to come quickly and it'll be integrated in many of the platforms. So how do we move forward with that in terms of, I think we need to recognize that students need to know how to use this. Uh, I think students need to become good editors or curators of their work. So uh, I think of how can we learn from maybe things like remix culture, you know, I, you think about something like the gray album that came out, which was mixing the black album from Kanye and the white album from the Beatles to create something new. Like there are all these opportunities where we've seen people take bits and pieces of various things to create new works of art. And maybe that's where we need to go and to, to train our students on. But you need to know which one you're taking from. You need to understand that and you need to edit or go through it for those potential biases. And so those are, it sounds like uh, in order to do that too, those are things that, that those of us in the education field also need to, to understand. I think so. And that requires kind of us playing with the tools. Um, I think having educators have the time and capacity after years of pandemic to have the, the mental and cognitive space for that. Uh, and maybe that ties in to a little bit of that fear of we had such a huge revolutionary change to everyone's learning online. Now are we going to have another? And, and maybe maybe there's a little bit of fatigue going on and, uh, and, and maybe we need to be compassionate with ourselves. But, um, you know, as it's also coming up is, are these tools that help deal with some of, at least that's how they're advertising. Is this a tool that can help you with marking? Is this a tool that will help you answer student emails? Uh, but again, if this is all proprietary software, there are some other questions about access, information gathering, those kind of choices. So we've talked uh, quite a, you know, a bit about kind of some some predictions. And and do you have other thoughts on kind of where you see where you see this heading? I I see it probably maybe being a bit more integrated into some of the the courses there. Um, some colleagues have done like had the, had the tool write a paper for them and then had the students evaluate it. So made the students the marker of, of it. So here are some representative examples. You know, how would you grade it? What's missing? What's on there? So there's some really interesting ways of, of using it in the classroom in a way that helps build that editor curator piece. Um, I also, you know, wonder at what point will we get used to it and it will become the calculator um, there's a qualitative software called InVivo. It's used in it. It does some basic coding, which we used to have to do with our pens and our pencils and our highlighters, if you've ever been a qualitative researcher. Uh, and now if you do it, it will do a quick sentiment analysis for you based on things like language, natural language processing tools. And so it'll kind of go, here are all the negative comments, here are all the good comments. Um, so we might see that, you know, could, could this be integrated in other ways? Could we'd be requiring students to train these tools to do the multi-shot learning as part of their, their thing. So you have to find the best examples and feed it in and then evaluate how well it came out um, there. So I could see that there's some options there kind of moving forward into kind of new skills. And there could just be other ways that it helps that has nothing to do with your assignment, but just how do I write a professor to an, uh, an email asking for an extension? How do I write an email to a professor asking this, right? And that's where right now, currently chat GPT does a really good job. You ask it to write an email requesting that your landlord reduce your rent. 
just a pretty good job. Um, so there may be some of these other factors where it comes into play and it just helps us interact with each other and explain ourselves or to be able to say, oh, I don't know what this student means. Let me put it into chat GPT tool uh, and find out, like, can you summarize this for me? And we might find, oh, oh, this is what the tool thinks. I didn't read it that way. So there are a lot of possibilities um, with the caveat of we're using third-party tools and every time we're using them, we're giving them data. And so there may be some privacy questions that we also have to investigate. Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, whether we, with the comparison to calculators, we, you know, we do trust them. We don't question the answer that we get. Um, will that be a point that we get to with something like chat GPT? Is that a, should we get there? Oh, those are hard questions. Um, I think if I come from the perspective of um, the companies that are investing in this tool um, and some of their work, they're, they're looking at how can I make sure I'm giving you the right answer um, so that you will feel like it's working for you. Um, I think I always come from the perspective of like, we, do we know how the calculator works? We do. We can verify it. Um, and I think that's more where we're at now with ChatGPT is, is looking at it and going, okay, did it, can we verify it? And then I really wonder too, again, not too many people are asking it, but I mean, whose, whose data is being used to create this? Is it representative? Um, Cause so often we, we get tools that are meant to help certain groups and then they're the ones who try to use it. And it's like, it's, it's, it's ridiculously hard. It was never meant for this really. Um, I think of sometimes, you know, oh yeah, you can dictation software is great. You can talk out your paper. Well, depending on um, your speech pattern, how quickly you speak, how loudly you speak, it works differently and it requires different amounts of training. So it works very well for our neurotypical individuals. But if you stutter, if you have a particular accent, um, all of these different ways of, of being and expressing yourself, it does not work as well like your autocorrect on your phone. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's quite fascinating. And, and um, really important, I think, to keep in mind, as you've said, what, what is, where's the data coming from for the technology? And, and I, I really love that you've um, sort of stressed, you know, who might be advantaged or disadvantaged by any of this. Those are, those are really important things to keep in mind, aside from, the whole academic integrity topic. And I actually would argue, I don't think it's aside from academic integrity. If we think of what we define academic integrity in terms of honesty, trust, fairness, respect, actually it's essential. So um, I think maybe talking about these tools, talking about how they're created, understanding their biases, I think that's actually the essential for post-secondaries and all educators to engage in. If we want to think about learners and how we're supporting them, we want to support them to make good ethical decisions, not only in the work that they produce for us in the classroom, but the choices that they make in using technology in the workplace. And so I think that's where we can kind of have a nice common ground and say, yeah, we need to think about these tools and what we can do. Um, I think of it in terms of Jurassic Park, right, where there's this quote of they were so busy wondering if they could, they never thought of if they should. I'm like, that's where we come in and say, should. So it's not, now we know it can do this. 
but we need to come in and ask, should it be applied to these situations? Should it be used? And I think that's where we're coming from when we think about ethical uses of academic integrity. It's not just ethical in terms of right now we're focused on in the classroom and assignments and assessments, but maybe it's a question of, is it ethical to use these tools to grade people? Is it ethical to implement these projects outside in the workforce? And what is our responsibility as educators to help our students make, ask good questions and to make these decisions in a way that really thinks about um, the diversity of all the human beings that they're gonna interact and who will use this tool. That um, that really sounds like your your I think your research is going to answer so much of what you've talked about there. So that's quite exciting. When when will it be available? When will when will people be able to learn about what you're finding out? So um, we are just publishing a uh, systematic review protocol, which we'll talk about how we're doing that. Our project's still at the beginning stages. We're just about to do some data collection. But if people are interested in um, following our work, we do have uh, a site through Open Science where we are talking about our, our recent publications. It links to a variety of other tools and things that we're developing. So I believe the link is in the, the show notes, and that'd be a great place for people to follow us as we, we keep developing and as we start to share our insights along the way. Oh, thank you so much. That's wonderful. Yeah, I think that uh, quite a few people will be interested in having a look at that and following along. Well, thank you very much, Brenda, for uh, joining me today. This has been absolutely fascinating. Um, Do you have any other closing comments before we finish? I think it's a final thought. Um, I think it's a we need to keep in mind that this is a new and exciting tool. New things are scary, but that doesn't mean that they're actually bad. Um, So I think we need to explore, work with, um, and get a little bit excited about some of the possibilities and then think about, okay, how are we teaching ourselves and our students? When is it appropriate to use this? What are the benefits? What are the drawbacks? And because it's so new, we all have to kind of explore that together. And I think if we have open discussions with our students about this, that this tool exists, this is what it can do, this is what it can't do. I think we'll be able to develop that um, as a community moving forward. Well, thanks again, Brenda. I really appreciate you taking the time to meet with me today. This has been just such a fascinating discussion. And uh, maybe we'll have to have you back in a year or so to find out what you've discovered, because uh, that will be, you know, in another year's time, a whole another conversation. It would be my pleasure to come back. And I just want to take one moment before we leave to acknowledge all of my collaborators on the project. So that's Dr. Sarah Lane Eaton, Helen Penthrick, Beatrice Moya, Jonathan Lesage, Bob Brennan, Jason Weems, and Ma Itai. This episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host and Brenda McDermott as guest. Jordana Gagnon was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl B., Kelsey J, Janice M, and Jamin H for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning, and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca. Thanks for listening and take care.